You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Good morning. We um, have been in a sermon series over the last couple of weeks called Practicing the Good Life, an Invitation to Abundance. Today is the final day of the series. I hope y'all have enjoyed it. It's been a blessing to me. I especially want to shout out um, the message on rest and Sabbath. If you haven't heard it, I just think it's resonant for this time. So, um, Yes, please check that out. Um, Today, we're going to be hearing from one of our shepherding elders, Justin Early, who has taught here before um, about common rule and rule of life. He'll explain more of what that means in a second, Um, but really excited to have him with us to share. Um, Before we go to God's word together, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, your gift to your people, the way that you've revealed yourself to us. I pray that this word would fall on good soil, good ground, and that you would grow from it um, all that we need and all that you are doing in each of us. We trust you. Amen. Liz Foreman will read our scripture. A reading from the first chapter of the book of Daniel. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is a reading from the twelfth chapter of the book of Romans. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice 
holy, and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. When I was young, I had a great yard. We had a big backyard, it's big enough to play a good game of baseball in. We had an awesome hill, which was great for slip and slide in the summer, tumbling down the hills in the evenings. And it was surrounded by woods, plenty of trees, every, which, every one of them seemed good for building a rope swing or a tree fort, something like that. But ironically, one of the things that I remember most about my backyard is my mom's flower beds, seriously because she kept good care of them. Uh, She made sure that we helped her mulch them often, way too often, I thought. (laughs) And I will never forget one summer when she dug up one of them that was beside our red brick garage. And she replanted these small plants in them and then built or bought, I can't remember, these big trellises that leaned up against the brick. And over the course of that summer and through the next year, that red brick wall, that was a little bit barren and desolate, transformed into something gorgeous and beautiful because these plants grew all up the trellis and covered the brick and blossoms. I asked my mom about this a couple years ago. She said it was Carolina jasmine that she planted and that it's a vining sort of twine plant that if you don't direct it up, the trellis, against gravity, then it will go out into the rest of your garden and start to strangle the other flowers and sometimes even itself. For a long time, this was just a childhood memory, but it has now, in the recent years of my life, become such a dear spiritual metaphor to me because I realize now that I and you are much more like Carolina Jasmine than we realize. For us, for a human being, growth and change is a given. But whether that growth leads you up, flourishing, into something beautiful and blossoming, into the good life, or whether that growth leads you outward, crooked, strangling, ruining those around you and yourself, the difference depends upon the trellis that we build. Or, put in the language of the spiritual disciplines, the difference depends on the matter of the rule of life that we pick. So you may know we've been going through this summer a series on the spiritual disciplines. And we've been asking ourselves, especially in our current moment, what would it be like to look ahead and ask, what what, what does the good life look like? In a time when all our rhythms have been deconstructed by 18 months of the pandemic, as we look out into a fall, what would it be like to say, we are going to rebuild and we're going to rebuild something beautiful. What would it look like we culminate in today to take those spiritual disciplines and build them into a latticework, a trellis of the good life that the love of God and neighbor could actually grow on? Now, I understand that most of you have probably never heard of the word rule of life. Some of you are like, what is he saying? What's that phrase? <laughs> You're looking at your bulletin. It's like, it says rhythm of life. He's saying rule of life. I'm going to explain, Okay. Here's where we're going today. Rule of life, what it is, why you need it, how to do it. Rule of life, what it is, 
why you need it, how to do it. First, what it is. A rule of life is a communal commitment to certain spiritual practices. It's really simple. It's the idea that you and I, as a community, maybe as a family or as a church, we would commit to say, we're going to live according to these couple spiritual practices, expecting that God is going to use them to help us grow into something beautiful. Some people call it a rhythm of life. Historically, it's been called a rule of life. I don't want you to get hung up on the word rule. Um, The idea is not a set of laws that you have to obey. The reason that we call it a rule of life is because this term originated in the early church fathers who were writing in Latin. And the Latin word for, the, for rule here, the root connoted a bar or a trellis. Okay, so as you will look behind me at this wonderful slide, you will say, oh, wait, they've been plotting this all along. We've been talking about the spiritual disciplines, taking them one at a time, hospitality, prayer, scripture, community, generosity. And the idea of the rule of life is how do we weave them together into something that the good life, the abundant life, can grow on. But admittedly, the words rule of life is not in the Bible. You you will not find it there. So we need to go, let me take you to the Bible to show you how this idea of communally patterning our lives in specific and carefully chosen disciplines is actually a theme throughout the scriptures. And we're going to start and focus mostly on Daniel. So the background of the passage that we read is that Daniel and his people, the Israelites, have just been taken captive. Jerusalem has just fallen to Babylon. So this is an extreme time. Take note, their time is way more wild than our time. Our time is wild, their time is worse. They have just been taken into captivity. And Babylon and the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is picking out the best of Israel and bringing them into his court to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Read He's going to groom them. He's going to change them. He's going to subjugate these people, take their best, and make them like Babylon. But as you may know from reading the whole book of Daniel, the wonderful thing about the story of Daniel, the reason it's famous, right, is in the end, who changes who? It's incredible. In the end, these little guys like Daniel and his his brothers or his fellow Israelites, they change Babylon. The small people of God changes the empire. This question of who forms who is one, of the, is one of the most interesting and fascinating ways to read the book of Daniel. How does it happen? Well, it begins, amongst other things, of Daniel choosing very specific and seemingly inane patterns to commit to. In this passage, he refuses to take their food and drink. He says, I've got a different trellis of habit. I've got a different way of living. Watch and see if it doesn't make us flourish. Watch and see. This is the key insight in this this book. Not that we shouldn't eat that meat or drink that wine necessarily, but Daniel is aware that the patterns we live by have physical, mental, and spiritual consequences. He is aware that if we live like them in the small ways, we will become like them in the big ways. And that key insight is the foundational biblical backing of the rule of life. So the church fathers and spiritual communities throughout the last millennia have pointed to Daniel as one of the original examples of building a rule of life. And you'll know from reading the book that it, it, he keeps going. You know, he commits to certain patterns of prayer that get him thrown to the lion's den. He commits to speaking the truth to the king, even, even when it could get him killed. 
Now, we see this throughout the scriptures, though. Life of Jesus. Think about the life of Jesus. You read the Gospels. He's always doing these same things, and people notice them, right? He's always eating with the same kinds of people. He's always clinging to these disciples and his small form of community. He has these patterns of going out to pray, patterns of retreating to solitude, patterns of fasting, lots of these things we've talked about this summer. And why? Again, the idea here is Jesus is on a mission. He is sent by God to do something redemptive for us. He's here to change us, not to be changed by us. And part of his ministry is to show that he commits to certain patterns to do that. You also see it in the early church. Think of the famous passage in Acts 2, where the newly converted community of believers, they cling to certain communal patterns of life together. It's a wonderful passage. And I want to focus on that for a second because their conversion led them to live differently. And I want to emphasize that for one moment, okay? The biblical wisdom of the rule of life is not we order our life so that God will love us. It is not we order our life, we discipline our life so that we can become saved. It is the opposite. We are saved, therefore, we are attentive to our patterns. God loves us, therefore, we will live according to specifically chosen careful disciplines. We need to be really clear on this because the Bible is really clear on this. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved. This is not of yourselves. It is not through works, through disciplines, through rules of life, through spiritual practice. It is not through that. It is by grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's super clear, right? It's really clear. But what the Bible is also really clear about is that God's love changes people. And the proper response to our salvation, which is independent of our works, is to throw ourselves into good works. We, we can't stop at salvation because the Bible doesn't stop at salvation. It then goes on to talk about sanctification. And a lot of this stuff, for example, the next verse in Ephesians, Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to do spiritual practices, to do things like the rule of life, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Sum it up like this. Our spiritual disciplines will not change God's love for us, period. But God's love for us can, should, even must change our spiritual disciplines. As we often say around here at Third, in the words of Dallas Willard, grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. To sum up, so a rule of life is the biblical pattern of embracing communal spiritual practices. It is not legalistic. Rather, it is the biblical response to the gospel of grace. That's what it is. Now, why you need it? Why do you need it? because formation is inevitable, okay? You need a rule of life because your formation is inevitable. I just spent the past week at the beach with my family. It was awesome. We had one of those big nine bedroom houses with like, you know, 30 some people, including the kids and grandkids and dogs and all that. It was wonderful, it was much needed. And me and Lauren, my wife, and our four boys, two of whom are sitting in the front row here. Hi guys. We spent a lot of time in the water. And this is like a, a continually unfolding realization for Lauren and I and our four boys. You've probably seen our boys before. Hopefully you haven't been knocked over by them in the hallways, but some of you have. Um, outside is great for us because they can't break the outdoors. <laughs> so you know, the ocean is awesome. It's like, you can't hurt it. <laughs> you just do whatever you want. You can't hurt the woods. So we spend a ton of time in the water 
Wit and Ash um, spent a lot of time bodyboarding, and I really enjoyed that because I could surf beside them. Our youngest shepherd, who is almost three, spent a lot of time building sandcastles, running up to the surf, and then decided to retreat. And our third, Coulter, who is um, four and a half, not four, he is four and a half. He will make sure you know that. He is four and a half, and he was the fish. So he loved to just strap into his life jacket and sit in the surf and just bob. Like every wave was the coolest thing he'd ever seen, just laugh and bob. So I would be, you know, out surfing with the boys or on the beach doing a sandcastle with Shep, and I look up for Coulter, and I'm like, way down the beach is Coulter, just bobbing in the surf because the current just pulls him. And I did, we had to keep running, you know, running back there, down half a mile, I go pull him back. Not really that far. We're better parents than that. But we, we had to keep pulling him back over and over. And I kept thinking, it would be so nice if you just stay right here. But he couldn't because currents are real. Currents, if you do not want to get swept away by a current, you have to actively work constantly to swim against that current. Or you got to have a good parent who goes back and pulls you, or a good uncle, or a good aunt. Um, and as, of course, you may expect, I'm going to say, you are a lot more like Coulter than you think. Culture cultivates. The, the waters of our culture have currents. They take us somewhere. We call this formation, and it is inevitable. The reason that we tacked on the Romans 12, 1 and 2 verses is because Paul talks about the idea there in response to the gospel of grace. Now pay attention. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. He gives you two categories. Where the idea is you are always either being conformed to the culture around you or you are being transformed by the gospel of grace. Formation is inevitable. And while formation is inevitable, I want to tell you specifically that American formation is particularly invisible. Why? Because one of the hallmark features of American culture is our knee-jerk assumption of our freedom. We think that we ought to be, and indeed we are, free to choose who we are, who we're going to be, what we do, where we're going to go, how we're going to do it, our identity in any given moment, we assume we get to pick. But it's like that line from The Princess Bride where um, the, one, the one guy says to the other, you keep saying that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. We, got, we need to like biblically look at American culture and say, you keep saying that word. I don't think it means what you think it means because our default assumption is we get to pick who we are. So all the while, what we're actually like is Coulter bobbing down the shoreline, mumbling about our freedom, insisting that we're not going to swim that way unless we choose to swim that way. It's absurd. Culture cultivates. Currents exist. We, if, we're, if we are not going to be formed, conformed to American culture, we have to do something different. To do nothing is to do something very significant. It is to submit to the default patterns of the American rule of life. And they have spiritual, mental, physical consequences consequences. Um, here's how we should talk back. Here's how the Bible talks back. The Bible issues a wonderful and loving rebuke to American culture. It tells us that, and listen up, this is so important for you to understand. Freedom is not what happens by getting rid of all limitations. Freedom is what happens by choosing the right limitations. 
Freedom, biblical freedom. It is for freedom that Christ sets you free. This is the wonderful news of Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ sets you free. Freedom comes from submitting to the right master. You will always be bowing to some master. Jesus is the only one who actually loves you back. You will always be submitting to somebody's rule of life, but it's only Jesus's where the yoke is easy. Now I wanna ask you, are you tired? Are you busy? You're overwhelmed? Are you stressed? Are you racked with anxiety, depression, fear? That's what happens in the American rule of life. But Jesus's invitation is to a light yoke, an easy burden. Why do you need a rule of life? Because formation is inevitable. You are more malleable than you think. Your culture is a lot more like Babylon than you think. And so you need to be a lot more like Daniel than you think. We need to choose a carefully chosen rule of life in order to find the good life of grace, gospel, and flourishing. How do we do that? Here are three ways to start, okay? I want you to get out your pens and pencils. I'm not kidding. If you don't have one, there's pencils in front of you. Um, And while I'm about to unleash a tirade on technology. If you don't have a pencil, pencil, you can type it on your phone. I don't mind right now. This is a redemptive use. You have my permission. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you three categories. Um, Category one of the spiritual disciplines, category two of technology, category three of community. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just kind of like turn on a fire hose, all right? It's going to be a veritable waterfall of habit ideas in each of those categories. And what I want you to do is listen to them, take some notes on some of them, but just pick one in each category that you could consider, okay, this is my mini rule of life this fall. This is how, this is how I'm going to do this next season. One, one habit in the spiritual disciplines, one habit of technology, one habit of community. And I'll have you know, a lot of people in the first service came up to me afterwards and they showed me their notes. They really did. Listen, the only person who didn't write things down was my dad. Some things never change, right? I can't tell him what to do. He was like, it's up here. So write them down. But here's what I don't want you to do. One, resist the lie that this is overwhelming. All right? I'm I'm gonna spew a ton of habits, but it's a menu. Don't order everything on the menu. You will get sick. Just pick one in each category, all right? What's, remember, what's overwhelming is to do nothing and live the default American life. That is overwhelming. Number two, don't think that these habits are too small to matter. Some of these are going to be like little inane things that you might do. Archimedes once said of the power of the lever, give me a place to stand and I can move the world. I want you to think of small spiritual disciplines as levers of grace. God can lift the heaviest of hearts, change the heaviest issues in your world, your family's world, in our world by small patterns that we humbly say, I'm going to change. So don't think they're too small. And finally, don't think of these as things you're going to do alone. Because by the end, I want you to have thought in your head or written down in your paper, here's the one person in my family or my friend or my parish group. I'm going to talk to them. We're going to have a conversation and we're going to keep each other accountable this fall to our mini rule of life. All right, those are my prefaces. Ready? Here we go. Fire hose is about to come on. First, category of the spiritual disciplines. The background here is that the default American cultural current is that youth and I think about every day in terms of what we can do or accomplish. When the story of the world is actually about what God is doing throughout time and human history and the people of God, it's what he has already finished on the cross and what he is promising 
at the end of time. How do we swim against that default cultural current? Well, here are some ideas. Classic spiritual disciplines, scripture. What if this fall you said, as a habit, I'm gonna commit with my accountability partner to scripture before phone. I'm just, I am gonna trade the anxiety of my inbox first thing in the morning for the peace of the gospel, where he tells me that the world is not about what I can do, but about what he's already done. Or what if you, another habit idea, what if you just bought um, a devotional, a lectionary, downloaded one on your phone maybe, bought the Book of Common Prayer, and you put it on your coffee table, you put it on your kitchen counter, and you decide this is gonna be the first thing that I do every morning. After coffee, you're gonna get your coffee, and then you're gonna go do that book. What if you, or, or what if you, another idea, what if you downloaded the Dwell app? It's a great app, you can just listen to the scriptures, or downloaded a lectionary app, and you said on my morning commute, that's what I'm going to listen to. Or, or right when I sit down at my desk, that's what I'm going to listen to. Or before my kids wake up. Or on my morning walk, whatever it is. What if you said scripture is going to be the rhythm of my life? Or a different category. What about prayer? What if you committed to a short time of prayer every day? I like to do kneeling prayer because it marks the moment. I know that I'm doing it if I'm kneeling. Can't miss it. Like what, First thing in the morning, what if it was just you do a kneeling prayer right when you wake up? Or maybe you do it with your spouse before you go to bed. Or maybe you do it with your family after dinner. Or what about, we've talked about, a, we've talked about meditation and introspection. What if you said, this would be radical. What if you said, when I get to my desk every day, I am going to spend 10 minutes in silence before I start work. I'm just going to ask God, what are you saying about today? Or maybe meditate on a Bible verse. Or what if you said, during my kids' nap time, I'm going to, I'm going to start nap time with 10 minutes of quiet. Absolutely revolutionary act in our moment of time. What if you practiced in that 10 minutes the examine, like Corey was telling us, the idea of looking for where God is present or where you feel his absence? Okay, none of these things that I just mentioned will change much of your life the first time. All of these things that I just mentioned would be powerful lovers of grace committed to as a habit across the fall. Which one of them might, might work for you. Wouldn't it be amazing if you looked back, let's say around November, and you're like, oh my gosh, in the wake of the pandemic, that's when I finally became a person who prayed. When I went from being a person who liked prayer or thought about prayer to someone who actually habitually prayed. Wouldn't that be amazing? God is offering that to you. It's possible. Second category, technology. The background here is that most of you, for most of your life, have thought about technology as a neutral tool that you get to choose how to use. And one of the most important things I can say to you this morning is that it's not, and you don't. I want you to seriously consider, seriously, that probably the most important factor in your relationship to Jesus right now is the way you use technology. Let that sink in. I actually mean it. Probably the most important pattern in your discipleship to Jesus is the way that you use the screens around you. We are not just in a current here. We are in a riptide, a technological revolution riptide. To do nothing about your habit of technology is to be swept along the beach. Who knows where it's going, but it is not safe. And it, to surrender your habits of technology to the default cultural moment is to surrender your discipleship to Jesus. I, I, I'm not kidding, and I'm not exaggerating. So here are some ways we might be able to swim back or more accurately, have a good father who comes and runs and gets us and pulls us back. Here are some ideas. A regular time off every day. 
could one of the most important habits this fall be that you say, during family dinner or after dinner, I'm just going to turn my phone off, have all screens off for an hour. Maybe it's 9 p.m., you're in a roommate situation or a family, and you say, at 9 p.m., it's just family time. We're just going to talk. We're going to be face-to-face. Um, maybe it's you say, while I'm at the playground with the kids or while I'm at the desk working, my phone is going to be some place. could be just your living room. Like, you decide not to have a TV there. Now, why is all this stuff important? Why do I say all this? Well, it is to free you up from the invisible slavery of technology to actually give you the gift of one of the most important things that you have. You are created in the divine image of God. You have presence. You have a presence to give. One of the greatest gifts you will give your children is to look at them. One of the greatest gifts you give your spouse, your spouse wants this, is to look and listen, to be fully present. It's one of the greatest gifts we can give our neighbors, our friends. All of human love is communicated primarily through presence. All of this talk about technology is to free you up to give that. Presence is one thing, now, but I want to touch briefly on discipleship. That's another. What if, here's a habit idea, what if you took a sticky note and wrote on it, who is discipling you, and put it on your TV or your laptop? So then when you spend that hour and a half watching cable news every evening, you can at least think, why do I sit at the feet of these pundits and let them talk to me for an hour and a half. Yeah, I can't seem to find 10 minutes to be quiet before Jesus. Seriously, why? How is that happening? How is it possible that I can find 45 minutes to scroll Twitter every day, but I can't find 15 to be quiet and read the scriptures? Well, because we're in a riptide, and to do nothing is to do something really significant. But your habits of attention are discipling you. It's not this neutral thing where like, oh gosh, I lost some time. No, you lost some heart. You're listening to these people and you're being discipled in what they say when we need to be discipled by Jesus. Jesus is very clear, by the way, about the bondsman, the slavery stuff language. And, you know, we are to submit to the reign of the king and say yes to what he says. But remember, it is the lightest burden you will ever carry. You, we cannot serve two masters, Jesus and Twitter or Jesus and cable news. We got to pick one. And one of the most important things you do this fall might be to say, I'm going to put an intervening habit of my rule of life between me and that discipleship, and I'm going to pick Jesus instead. And trust me, there are plenty of ways to stay updated on God's good creation without being discipled by a media company who wants to sell your attention to advertisers. There are. There really are good ways. Last two in this category of technology. What, think about maybe a pre-posting habit, that before you post something or retweet an article that you haven't read, you just recite to yourself the fruits of the Spirit. Like, am I being kind? Am I being patient? Am I being gentle? Am I being self-controlled? Or, or maybe you say to yourself, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Jesus, what I'm about to post, is it burdening people with lies or is it setting them free with the truth? And, and pray, because you need the conviction of the Holy Spirit with that. I probably stepped on enough toes here, so I'm gonna move on to the community one. <laughs> But I do mean to, because I believe if St. Paul were writing his epistle to the Ephesians today, he would say, do not get drunk on screen media, but, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of you know, it's second nature. You're like, okay, sipping from a flask of Jack Daniels all day, every day is dangerous and bad and may ruin your life. But you maybe don't know that sipping from the flask of Facebook is perhaps more dangerous, perhaps more unhealthy, and will definitely ruin your life. It's a serious call. 
One of the most important aspects of your discipleship might be to pick one, one of these habits. Remember, it's a menu. Just pick one. I don't do all this stuff. I do some of them. You are free. Just pick one. Okay, last habits, habits of community. The slant of American life is to become busier, wealthier people who used to have friends. All right, and we have got to be people who decide we're going to commit to certain spiritual practices that put us in the way of community because to be in the way of community is to be in the way of grace. God finds us in the community and the fellowship of believers. So here's some quick habits to think about. Could you do a family dinner? Could that be your thing this fall? Where you say, our center of gravity is not going to be the schedule, the sports schedule. Our center of gravity is going to be the table. Could be a roommate dinner. Or one evening a week where you say, I'm going to, I'm going to meet up with this friend and we're going to talk honestly about what's going on in our life. It could be your parish group. Maybe this is the fall to say, all right, I got to go. We thought about it. I get those emails. I'm going to go. I'm actually going to make it a rule of life habit this fall. If you are concerned about health in the pandemic, I want you to think about this. What if the most spiritual investment you made this fall was in a pair of long johns, a good coat, and a nice fire pit? And you said nothing is going to come between me and Christian community because life is there. Remember, what good does it, what, what profit does it give a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And an isolated soul, I will tell you, is a dying soul. We need each other. <laughs> this could be a text chain with friends where you commit to pray. This could be a family Sabbath. Whatever it is, know this. When we commit to these rhythms of clinging to each other, we do something incredible. We incarnate the gospel of Jesus, which says, I'm going to see all your flaws. I'm going to see all your problems, but I'm going to stick around anyway. That is what Jesus says to us, and that's what we say to each other. It's a gospel act. Pick one in each category, not everything on the menu. Write it down. Write down a person that you can think of that you're going to stay accountable to. And let me close with this. One of the things that I love the most about my mom's Carolina Jasmine was when we walked out the door in the springtime. The air was just thick with this sweet, sweet aroma. And now I can never read 2 Corinthians 2.15 without thinking about this, where, where Paul writes that we are the aroma of Christ to those who are perishing. As I think about what it might look like for our community to walk into the fall with a mini rule of life, I think about us blossoming like this picture. And I think about what, a, what an amazing thing in, in an age where the church and the world around it can't communicate. We don't mean the same thing when we say love. We don't mean the same thing when we say freedom. We don't mean the same thing when we say justice. We don't mean the same thing when we say equality. Language is in a tough moment. What, what if the most missional thing that we could do is to live lives that are beautiful, live lives that get off the aroma of Christ so that people would be around Third Church, they would look at us, they would look at our families, and they'd be like, yes, weird, yes, don't agree with them, but wow, I love the way they live. Really like the way they live. That would be a beautiful thing. What if we could be the aroma of Christ? Let me pray that we would. Lord, we thank you that you give us stories in Scripture like Daniel that though the world was falling apart, 
you show us that it's possible to be faithful, faithful in the small things so that we can be faithful in the big things. Lord, would you convict us now that you love us that much, that your love is, is weighty enough to change how we live? And would you help us to humbly surrender our default patterns and say it is worth it, it is good for our neighbors, it is good for our family, it is honoring to God that we respond to the gospel of grace with these good works, these good discipline that you have prepared in advance for us to do. Bless us as we go forward with that. May we be your aroma to the world around us. Amen.